thank you for your word, and we pray that you would give us now confidence in your word. You have revealed yourself to us through your word. We pray that you would give us eyes to see it, and that by heeding your word, we might have health for us as a church and as a people. In all things, we submit ourselves to you, trust in your hand and your leading, and trust you for the good of our church. Help us to be obedient, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I've shared this with some before, but uh, many years ago, I remember watching this couple named Saju and Anu. I think many of you may know them. And I was always uh, particularly aware of how they raised their children. I watched them at a time when I didn't have children of my own, and so I remember this couple had five children. And so anytime you watch this couple with five kids and these kids aren't running around causing havoc everywhere, you're, you're impressed. And I, and I kept observing how these seemed to be well-mannered, obedient, respectful, and at the same time, happy children. And I was amazed at how they made that happen. I, I remember on one instance watching Saju with one of his children. I don't remember which one. When you have five, you know, you just, I think it was number four. So number four was acting up. And so Saju went over to number four and he bent down and he said something in number four's ear. And then number four went off and he went literally from total tantrum to an angel. And I remember thinking, what, what was that? So I went to Saju and I asked him, what did you say? And Saju has a great sense of humor. So he, he said, I pull him in real close and I go, I'm going to kill you, right? <laughs> and I don't know if that's what Saju actually said or not, but they had this way where the kids were, you know, not harsh. These kids didn't seem like they were crushed in their spirit or, or any of it. But at the same time, there was this balance of loving correction and gentle discipline in which they flourished and which they thrived. Uh, a very similar thing for Shino and I when we were in Boston. We spent some years in Boston, and there was this couple at the church named Kevin and Bridget, and they had four children. And I, again, remember watching time and time again and seeing how these two parented their kids. I can't tell you how many times I've seen Kevin pull one of his children to the side when they were acting up, bend down real close, whisper something in their ear, and again, they went from hellion to angel in whatever that conversation was. And I kept note of these things, and they had such a profound effect on me as I watched because when I had children of my own, I found that I began to imitate these same things, right? So when Hannah acts up, I pull her to a corner, and I don't know what to say, but I know whispering's the key, so I go, <laughs> listen, somehow this is supposed to work, <laughs> right? And I'm trying, right? And, and we know that there's something attractive and beautiful in an environment in which children are not neglected, nor are they harshly crushed, but at the same time, they seem to thrive in loving correction, in gentle discipline. This is what good dads will do. They will discipline the sons and daughters whom they love. Well, the Bible says that the church of God is a family as well. In fact, the letter that we've been studying for the last few months is the book of 1 Timothy. And in 1 Timothy 3, verse 15, you can just hear it, the church is described as the household of God. We've said this before, and you should know it by now, hopefully, but the church is not brick and mortar. It's not a building. It's not an event. It's not a service. It's not something you come to. You don't even go to church. It's something you are. It's something you're a part of. 
And in 1 Timothy 3.15, it says that it's a people. And who are these people? They are a family, the family of God. And in 1 Timothy, it says that the church is the household of God. That means that we are family and God is our father. That's good news. Some of you grew up with great dads. Some of you grew up with lousy dads. But good news for all of us is that when you become a Christian, you are transferred into a new family where you have a better dad. In fact, you have the best dad. God is the perfect dad, the kind of dad every man in the room should emulate to try and be like. And being a perfect dad, God is one who both lovingly corrects and gently disciplines his children. He's not harsh in a way that crushes us, nor is he negligent in a way that lets us simply run our way. He lovingly corrects us. He gently disciplines us. In fact, this is seen in a great passage in the scriptures from Hebrews 12. Let me just read it to you, and you should just allow these words to wash over your heart as you consider the kind of God that you have. It says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastens every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they, that's our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, that's our heavenly father, disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained up by it. It's a great passage, one worthy of your own consideration and contemplation. But in the passage, it's giving you this basic news. Listen, if you're a child of God, then part of what that means is that you have a good dad who will lovingly correct and discipline his children. Let me add some flesh to that so you get a sense of how that plays out. When you become a Christian, that is, you become a child of God, you repent of your sins, you trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus, at that moment you are transferred into the family of God. And now you follow Jesus. But anyone in this room who's been Christian for over five minutes knows that though you follow Jesus, that, that walk doesn't go perfectly. Right? It's like sin is here and Jesus is here and you had spent your life walking in this direction. Jesus saved you, turned your shoulders, you start walking in this direction and yet that walk doesn't go perfectly. You stumble, you fall, you falter, you trip up. Every now and then you'll even turn back. So Jesus has pointed your shoulders in a new direction. You're walking towards the Lord but every now and then your shoulders start to inch back and you start heading in the opposite direction. You start living in sin. And what happens when that happens? Well, God, in his love for you, will bring correction into your life. He'll see your shoulders pointed in the wrong direction, and he will gently nudge your shoulders back. He'll bring correction into your life, loving discipline into your life. When we wander and sin and stray off the path, 
He corrects us. And he does that a number of ways. For example, some of you know of times where you've just felt the Holy Spirit shred your heart apart. You know you're living in something you ought not to be. You know you belong to Jesus. And somehow the Holy Spirit seems to to have a bullseye and, and throws an arrow right at that spot in your heart and you feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Other times it'll come through his word. You'll be reading the Bible and some verse will leap off the page and be as it were written just for you. Or you'll be sitting in church and, and the preacher will preach. And for some reason, something he says is like a laser beam on your heart. Maybe you've had times where you go, did he know? How did he know to say that? He doesn't know, but the Holy Spirit does know. And so the Holy Spirit can take these puffs of air and apply them exactly in the places of your life they need to be applied. God is faithful to do that. Other times he'll do it, correction in the context of brothers and sisters. Remember, we're a family, and so how many times have you come and been corrected by a brother or a sister? We have smaller communities called GCMs. We do things called soul care where we share our lives with one another. I can't tell you how many times I have had the men in this room, brothers, correct me. Where I'll be sitting and I'll be sharing my life and, and I'm venting about some argument I had with Shainu. And I'm, and I'm letting them have it and I'm making my case and I'm ready for them to come back and say, Oh, you poor man. How can you be married to such a brute and you're such a holy husband and, and so on. This is what I'm waiting for. And every time, they look me right in the eyes and they call me out. And, and they tell me the exact opposite of what I want to hear, but precisely what I need to hear. And because of it, my soul is corrected. My, my waywardness is redirected and I'm brought back to the path which is narrow. They will look me in the eyes and tell me you're not loving your wife as Christ has loved the church. And by it, my soul is disciplined. My heart is corrected. The Lord graciously does this time and time again in the lives of his children where he will gently correct us and lovingly discipline us so that we might come back. And you should know, if this is obvious, that discipline is never pleasant. It's often painful. In fact, the verses we read in Hebrews said, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but later on it produces a harvest of righteousness for those who are trained up by it. Discipline's never pleasant. It feels like a dagger in the moment, right? You can just ask my children. My children will be able to tell you that discipline is not pleasant. It doesn't seem like dad is loving, and yet it's the most loving thing that I can do, right? I, I'll, I'll call my son. Micah's two years old. And when he whacks Hannah in the face, I need to discipline him for Hannah's health and well-being and for Micah's soul. I need to discipline them. So I call Micah over. And this two-year-old is wailing and bawling because discipline is not pleasant. And he's crying his eyes out. And so I say to him, I say to two-year-old Micah, Micah, what does Jesus say I need to do when you disobey? And bawling his eyes out, discipline me, right? And so then I say, does Dada love you? And he says, yes, because I need him to know that. This is not anger. This is not retribution. This is not judgment. Dada loves you. And so then I say, okay, then why am I disciplining you? So that you can, and he'll say to me, so I can learn to obey. And then we discipline, and when it's done, I grab Micah, and I pray, and I ask Jesus to forgive and restore. 
And Micah, at two years old, after the amen, knows to say to me, all my sins gone? That's right, Micah, all your sins are gone. That's discipline. That's, uh, that's what the Father wants to do, lovingly correct us. And though it stings, bring us back to the right path. Now, what happens when someone doesn't? That is, someone doesn't receive discipline, doesn't respond to correction, doesn't turn their shoulders and walk back. But what happens when they are insistent on step after step after step, intentional, headlong, deliberate, ongoing, rebellious sin? What happens when someone who identifies themselves as a Christian, who has said that he's part of the household, the family of God, who says, I am following Jesus and walking this way, now step after step after step walks in this direction? What happens when a member of the church is in ongoing, not a one-time momentary lapse, not a bad decision, not a bad day, but an ongoing, unrelenting, unrepenting sin. What we're essentially asking is, what do you do when a member of the church who identifies themselves with Jesus now lives in unrepentant sin? When you're calling out to them and now the conversations don't produce anything in their heart, when the sermons no longer have any effect, when the word of God is bouncing off blind eyes, when they're turning a deaf ear to your pleading with them, come, be restored, be repentant, come back. What happens when all of that is met with a deaf ear and a blind eye, when it's like their heart has turned concrete and now everything simply bounces off and nothing lands and nothing penetrates and nothing hits its mark? What is the family of God, the household of God, what is the church supposed to do when a member who identifies themselves with the household of God now walks in ongoing, unrepentant sin? That's the situation the church at Ephesus was facing in the passage that Binu read for us. And the wisdom and counsel that Paul gives there is counsel that we desperately need if we are going to be a healthy church. He read it for you, but let me read it again so that you hear this. This is 1 Timothy 1, verses 18 to 20. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now, it's been a number of weeks since we've been in 1 Timothy, so let me quickly remind you, or if you're just joining us, quickly bring you up to speed. This letter was written by an apostle named Paul, a messenger of Jesus, and it was written to a pastor, a young pastor named Timothy. And Timothy was supposed to get into the life of this church at Ephesus, a church plant young like us that had become a complete mess. And he was supposed to repair the damage and restore beauty in the life of this church, that this might become, again, a healthy church. And one of the principal problems in the life of this church was the problem of false teachers. And so what you had were you had men standing behind the pulpit who were leading the people astray, who had gone astray themselves and departed from authentic Christianity, and now were leading everyone astray. 
And Timothy was to get in there and he was to fix that mess. And it's in that context that we get these verses from 18 and following. Because in 18, Paul grabs Timothy and he says, Timothy, I charge you because of the gospel I have entrusted to you, a gospel he just finished preaching in verses 12 through 17. Because of this gospel that I'm trusting you with, listen, you can't be like them. You can't wander. You can't go away from faith. You've got to hold on to a good conscience. And then he says, by rejecting this, what is that? A good conscience. Some have made shipwreck of their faith, verse 20, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So here's what's happening. Some have rejected a good conscience, right? So he gives the example of two men who have done this, who have abandoned the faith, and he says, here's what they've done. They've rejected a good conscience. We've talked about this before. We've talked through the idea that it is a dangerous thing to repeatedly stifle your conscience. That's important, so let me slow down and you hear that again. It is a dangerous thing to repeatedly shut your ears to the promptings and proddings of your conscience. Do not assume one day I'll listen to this, for now I can't. It is a dangerous thing to continually numb yourself from your conscience. Here's why. Heretics are not born overnight. No one wakes up one day following Jesus and suddenly becomes a heretic that abandons the church and abandons Jesus. Instead, that path is cleared by a thousand small compromises. You hear that? No one one just walks out on Jesus or walks out on his church. It's the death of a thousand paper cuts. It's a thousand small compromises that eventually lead, as these men had done, to rejecting a good conscience. And now the result was, the verse tells us, they made a shipwreck of their faith by continuously deafening their ears to their conscience and closing their eyes to the promptings of their heart. They've made a shipwreck of their faith. It's a great metaphor. If you've ever read about a shipwreck, it's, it's the idea that there was once this mighty vessel in the waters heading in a certain direction, and now this thing has been destroyed and splintered into a thousand pieces. It's just driftwood in the water. What was once a mighty vessel going somewhere is now unrecognizable, just driftwood everywhere. And that's the condition of these men and their faith. By rejecting this good conscience, they have made a shipwreck of their faith. And he names here two men who have done exactly this, Hymenaeus and Alexander. The idea is that these men were probably not only once members of the church, but once probably leaders, pastors who stood before the people, who had identified themselves with Jesus, and now they have completely abandoned the faith. Now hear this. The word does no more penetrating. The conversations do nothing. The sermons bounce off their heart. And no matter how much you call them, they are step after step after step in ongoing, unrepentant, unyielding sin. And their heart has turned to concrete and everything is bouncing off. And with that being the case, what does Paul do with them? What does Paul do with these two unrepentant members of the church? Listen again to verse 20. Among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Hear that again. 
What Paul does with these two unrepentant members of the church is he hands them over to Satan so that they may learn not to blaspheme. Okay, now, at that point, if you're tracking with me, you should call timeout, and you should say, what does that mean? He handed them over to Satan, and what is that about? Right, maybe if you're following this, you're even thinking, this is why I don't really like Paul. Right, Jesus I'm a fan of, but Paul is always over the top, a bit too intense. He's way too type A for us. He's going to hand these two over to Satan. What on earth does that mean? Here's what I want to say. Where do you think Paul got that idea? In fact, I want to quickly show you what Jesus teaches on this same thing so that we can come back and hear what Paul just said. In Matthew 18, Jesus is teaching his disciples about this same thing, and I want you to hear what he says. This is Matthew 18, verse 15 and following. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now there's a bunch there, but let me run through it very quickly so that you hear what Jesus is teaching. Jesus has in mind a scenario where one Christian, and if you'll notice, Jesus too understands that we're a family. So he doesn't call him a Christian, he says a brother. If one brother sins against another brother, what do you do? Now there will be times where the offenses are minor and we can overlook them. Proverbs says that's a beautiful thing when you can overlook sin. But there are other times where the sin is so egregious that they need to be confronted. And so he outlines what you ought to do. Verse 15, one brother sins against another. Here's what you do. You go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. You and him alone. This isn't gossip. This isn't, can you believe what so-and-so did to me? Can you hear? Can you pray with me? This is just, you go and tell the brother what he did to you. And the text says, and if he repents, if, if you win him, you've gained your brother. It's beautiful. You can be reconciled, right? You can be a family again. You can come and share fellowship. That's the point. You can have communion together. That's the point, right? Even this table. Have you ever been around an awkward family meal where you know there's tension between some people in the room and you know there's conversation that needs to be had, but no one's having the conversation? That's the worst place on earth to be. You would rather eat McDonald's at the corner than be at that table, right? And Jesus is trying to say, listen, my communion table is never going to be an awkward family meal. There should never be a time where this is an awkward family meal. If there's something that needs to be said, you speak it out and say it out so that when you come to this table, this is a great meal of fellowship. This is why when we give communion, we say examine to make sure you're right with God and with one another so that you can come to this table. So Jesus says, if someone sinned against you, you go tell them that sin. If they repent, you've won your brother. It's wonderful. But family doesn't always work that neat neither in in the world nor in the church. And so there'll be times where we wrong one another. And so he says in verse 16, if he does not listen, take one or two along with you. Again, the goal is not gossip to spread this, but rather to grow the circle only as is necessary. And so now one or two or three believers plead with this brother and say, please repent. Please turn back. We love you. We miss you. We want you to come back. And if you'll repent, we will be ready to forgive. And two and three plead. 
Jesus goes on, verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, then tell it to the church. And so now you're bringing the family in. And one brother has tried, and two or three brothers have tried, and now the whole family is pleading with the brother and pleading with him to repent and return and be restored and be reconciled. And the idea is all along you're pleading with him. This is many phone calls. This is many emails. This is many sitting down at the living room and talking this out. This is pleading, begging, imploring, come to your senses, come back to Jesus, come back and be reconciled. And then Jesus says, verse 17, if he refuses even to listen to the church. So now one has gone and three have gone and the whole church has pleaded. If he refuses even to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And so the idea Jesus is saying is, listen, if one he blows off and three he blows off and the whole church he blows off, then you are to let this man go in his sin. You are to put him out of the church and back into the world. The way Jesus says that is he says you are to treat this man like a Gentile or a tax collector. That's Jesus' way of saying you're to treat him like an unbeliever. Now, we need to be careful to remember how did Jesus treat unbelievers? How did he treat Gentiles and tax collectors? They weren't his enemies. He wasn't smug and self-righteous towards them. He wasn't condemning towards them. But he certainly didn't share fellowship with them like he did his disciples. There was something there. There was great love, but there was always this distance of, please come, please be reconciled, please repent. And so likewise, the church is now to treat this unrepentant brother like an unbeliever. Essentially, what this is saying is that the nature of the relationship with this brother has now changed, right? What the church is essentially saying is we can no longer affirm that you are walking towards Jesus. We, we can no longer affirm that because everything in your life is now walking in headlong, ongoing, unrepentant sin. And so we can no longer affirm that we have confidence that you are a child of God, that you are a part of the family, and so we can no longer affirm you as our brother. Hear that? We don't treat them like enemies. We also don't pretend they're brothers where nothing's wrong. We plead with them and implore them and beg them to come back to their senses. Essentially what Jesus is saying is, you are turning this person over to follow the direction that they so desperately want to go. And that's what Paul is saying in this passage as well. In 1 Timothy 2, if you come back to it, when he says in verse 20, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Here's what he's saying. If you were here last week when we preached from Ephesians 2 on Easter, we said in Ephesians 2, in the first three verses, it gives us our condition. And if you were here last week, I said that the condition is that we are dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked. And then the verse goes on in verse 2 to say, following the prince of the power of the air, following the course of this world. We said that our condition, apart from grace, is that we by nature follow the course of this world. And the Bible used that term, the prince of the power of the air, to describe God's enemy, God's enemy Satan. And we said that it's sort of like he's this power, this influence, this 
pervasive energy that spreads throughout the whole world. And apart from Jesus, we all breathe that in. We all follow the course of the world. We all follow the prince of the power of the air. And when Jesus saved us, verse 4 of Ephesians 2, what he essentially did was he took us out of that world. He took us out of being captive to the world. And Ephesians 2, 4 says he raised us up and seated us with Christ. He took us out of the domain of the enemy, out of captivity to the prince of the power of the air. And he put us in a new family. Listen, if you're a Christian and you've been put in the church, Jesus rescued you out of a terrible home with a terrible dad and put you in a new family with a good dad. So when Paul says here, I've handed these two over to Satan, what he's saying is, I've taken these two and I've put them back in the world. I put them back into that domain in which they were before Jesus rescued them, or at least before we thought he had. What, what he's essentially doing is handing them back into that domain, saying you want that life so badly, you can go to that life. So he's not figurative or literally handing them over to Satan, but saying here, you, you are no longer in the company of the church to share table fellowship at communion, to receive the benefits of fellowship. You've now been put back into the world. But you have to hear this. Why does he do that? Is it for punishment? Is it for revenge? Is it so he can smugly look down at them? The text tells us, I've handed them over to Satan so that they may learn not to blaspheme. The hope of this is restoration. The hope of this is not punitive. It's not revenge. It's restoration. In fact, in another place, when Paul is talking about this in 1 Corinthians 5, there's another situation going on in the church in 1 Corinthians 5 where there's a man in the church who's living in this terrible sexual sin. Everybody in the church knows it. It's flagrant. It's ongoing. It's unrepentant. It's not a one-time mistake. It's this ongoing thing. And yet this man comes into church every week and sings with everyone else and grabs communion with everyone else and listens to the preaching with everyone else and goes back with everyone else. And Paul says to this church, how can it be that he comes in every week and none of you have addressed this yet? In fact, he says, how is it that you're so proud the church had this thought that they were so open and affirming and they were non-judgmental and anybody could come. And Paul says, how are you doing this? This man is making a mockery of the gospel and no one has had the stomach to do anything yet. And so he says to them, the next time you all gather, here's what I want you to do. In the name of Jesus, you are to put this man out. He says here, you are to deliver him to Satan. Same text, same usage. You're to hand him over to the world so that, and the text says, by the destruction of his flesh, his sinful nature, his spirit might be saved. The hope in this putting out is that this person would be so buffeted by being back in the world that they would so miss Jesus and his family that they would return to their senses and come running home. I need you to hear that. The goal of discipline is not punitive. It's restorative. It's not judgment and condemnation and revenge. It's this pleading, this imploring that they might come to their senses and come home. When I discipline Micah, I am not taking out anger. And that's a good word for all parents, right? When you discipline your kids, 
you make sure your heart is right. You're not lashing out. You're not letting them have it for what they did. You take enough time till your heart is in a place where you can know this is for their restoration. This is for their salvation. And that's the heart behind the church discipline practiced here. The hope is that by putting this person out, this person would be coming back to their senses and come home. In fact, our posture, should we ever do this, hear me, Seven Mile Road, should be like the dad in the story of the prodigal son. Jesus once told the story of two sons and one had gone away. One had gone step after step after step in deliberate, ongoing rebellion against dad. And he had wandered far, far away from home. And in the story, Jesus says that one day he's literally made a complete mess of his life. Everything he had is gone. Everything is ruined. The the comforts of home and family are gone. And now he's in the harsh realities of the world. And he's literally in a mess, in a pigsty. And the text says he comes to his senses. And he thinks, I got to go home. And he practices a speech of, Dad, I'm so sorry. I'm not worthy to be your son. I'll just live here as a servant. Just let me live in the servant's quarters. And he's rehearsing this speech as he's on his way home. And what does the story tell us? But this dad is standing on his porch, and what does he do? He sprints. He takes off. He runs down that hill. He doesn't wait and and get that lecture he had been planning ready. He doesn't have his I told you so speech. He doesn't have his you can't come here, you can go live in the surf. None of it. He takes off. He runs down that hill. The boy can't even finish his speech before dad embraces him. And says, enough, you don't need to say any more. Calls to the servants and says, you've got to put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Get him some new clothes. Kill the fattest cow we have. We're going to have a feast. That's the heart. So that if we would ever have to put out a brother who is walking in unrepentant, unyielding sin, we would do it like that dad. That means we would be standing by the porch every day, looking out, tiptoes, sprint sneakers on, ready, so that if he should ever make the slightest turn back, man, we take off and we run as fast, as furiously as we can. We embrace him and we throw the best party this church has ever thrown because that's our heart. We're pleading, return. Come back to your senses. Be restored to Jesus. No lectures, no second-class citizen treatment. No, you have to prove yourself for a while. You repent, you're restored because we've been waiting. We've been waiting on this porch every day for you to come back. That's the heart. Paul is saying to Timothy, listen, Ephesus is a mess, and if you're going to repair this damage, you need the beauty of of church discipline. So if you're here today, I want you to just hear this last thing from me. If you're here and you're living in unrepentant, ongoing sin, would you receive these puffs of air for what they are, which is grace from God for you right now to call you home? Would you not close your ear to this again? Would you not close your eyes or harden your heart? It is a dangerous thing to stifle conscience and to silence the promptings of the Spirit. 
No one abandons Jesus overnight. And yet this is a moment where the Lord himself, by his spirit, is calling to you, come back, come home, repent. And if you do, I promise you, you have a father who will sprint down that hill, ready to restore you. A father who will sprint down that hill to receive you again. So don't harden your heart. Return to the Lord. And may all our hearts be in that same posture, even towards one another, so that we might be a healthy church that, by God's grace, practices well the beauty of church discipline. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your love that in your grace towards us and love towards us, you have not let us go. There's no more wrath than to simply let sinners go, but in your grace, you pursue us. Like wayward children, you gently correct us and discipline us. We pray that our hearts would be soft enough to respond to your discipline and to come back pray over every heart even now that none would be so hard as to forfeit the mercy extended in this very hour. There's grace right now, mercy right now available to all who will receive it. And so help us to put down our egos and our pride and to return home and to find we don't find a lecture from you. We don't find a scowl on your face. We find a father who will sprint down the hill for us. We pray for any whose hearts are hard. We pray that you would help them to come to their senses even now, that you would extend grace to them. Hear our prayer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.